This is the We Spin Recipes podcast with Andrew Apanov. Hello everyone, Andrew Apanov here and you're listening to the 59th episode of the We Spin Recipes podcast. Last week I was in Ljubljana, Slovenia at the Mend Music Conference, as some of you may know already. And uh, the event was held only for the second year. I was there for the first time and I, I, I want to say right away that it was greatly organized. Both the conference and the music festival parts, all in all, really interesting uh, event. It was cool to learn about the specifics of the Balkan music scene. And uh, if you are in the area next year, I highly recommend you attending. I hosted a lecture there on Thursday. The theme was social media and music. And right after me on that same stage, there was a panel called The New Life of Indie Labels. It was packed. In fact, I didn't even have uh, a place to sit. And uh, it was extremely interesting. The moderator of the panel was Chris Ekman, the owner of Glitterbeat Records, which won the Best Label Awards at the Womax Conference in both 2014 and 2015. I couldn't miss the opportunity to interview Chris and I did end up talking to him right after the panel. So here, a quick note uh, on, on this recording that you're about to hear. The conversation took place literally after the end of the session. As I mentioned, it was packed. So it took some time for the crowd to leave the room. So the first 10 minutes or so of the interview um, uh, is pretty noisy. It gets much quieter later. Also, sometimes we refer to the speakers of the panel and you can check out the list of all four speakers in the show notes at wispin.co forward slash WSR59. I recommend the episode to musicians, probably even more than to labels, for whom it all may be somewhat obvious stuff, because I want you, the artist listening to us right now, to, to hear how an indie label operates. So even if you're familiar with the, the topic overall, I'm pretty sure you will learn something new here. And if you're thinking now, like, I've got an album almost ready, or an EP, and should I self-release it, or should I find a label for it, then definitely do listen to this and make notes. Knowing how a label operates these days can help you and uh, if you know what label goes through to release a record for you, you can make uh, a better decision with a question like that. Something I really liked in this chat as well was the simple clear idea that a label is not trying to rip you off. So indirect labels are not that profitable a lot of the times. <laughs> if, if you didn't know before. Uh, and there are reasons why you may not be receiving the support that you'd hope to get. It doesn't excuse every, you know, plainly bad label out there, but keep it all in mind, folks. So anyway, you'll learn much more from Chris, including the rising popularity of vinyl, how artists are overburdened with responsibilities these days, the homework to do before reaching out to a label and so on. Here we go, an interview with Chris Ekman from Glitterbeat Records. My name is Chris Ekman, and uh, my main uh, role these days is as a, a label owner and label manager for a label called Glitterbeat. 
We are based in Ljubljana, Slovenia, but we're basically a German company, so we have, a, we have an office also in Germany. And uh, my background is as a record producer, also a musician. I've been involved in the music industry for the last 25 years. Glitterbeat is a label that specializes in what I would call global music. Uh, a lot of our artists are from West Africa. Some are from South America, Europe, even America. Uh, but what we're looking for more than anything are sounds and artists that are not really part of the let's say, a dominant Anglo-American pop music conversation. But who are you, you targeting mainly with these releases? You mean as far as what kind of artists? Or no, no, the, the audience. The audience, I think it's, it's hard to say. I mean, the way we market our music is we market as contemporary music. I mean, a lot of labels like us, I would say, market their artist as world music. We really resist this title and uh, we resist this way of working you know I mean we have artists like uh, there's one from Mali called Tamicrest I mean we've you know we've been in all the major rock magazines Uncut Spin in America uh, Rolling Stone Mojo I mean we look at it very much as you know what we're doing as contemporary music it's it's not folkloric you know music from the, the bush or from the from tribal areas I mean it's you know mostly The African music we're doing is from urban areas, so that alone makes it more cosmopolitan, of course. And um, yeah, do you see like that the India labels are more important in specific territories than some major markets? So the importance of labels is it different in different markets territorially? Yeah, I mean, I think most indie labels at this point have to survive in, in a, at least a semi-global market. Yeah. I, I think the, the record industry was such 20 years ago where you could have strong independent labels that were just based around one territory. Certainly in small countries like Slovenia or, or so on, that's, that's not possible. Even in Germany, I would say it's becoming less, less possible to do that. I mean, maybe America is large enough uh, that that can work. But even so, I mean, with the Internet functioning the way it does with, with digital music, actually most labels are to one, you know, to some extent global entities. But that doesn't mean that having local knowledge and specific knowledge about territories isn't very important. Isn't important. I think it's fundamental. I mean, really, the mix of, as we talked today on the panel, the mix of, let's say, digital to physical product can be very different from one territory to another. You need to know how that works. That's sorry for interrupting, but that's really interesting. And then there were some interesting insights here, and some listeners who are from the U.S., for example, may not be aware of these specifics. So, can you mention some of the? Yeah, I mean, for example, if you go to Scandinavia, there's almost no physical music market left. I mean, literally, we are talking like, if uh, you know, artists that I ship several thousand to the UK, I ship maybe a box of 50 or 60 to all Scandinavian countries put together. That's how different it really is. It's really, really fundamentally, uh, you know, parallel paradigms. They just, it just works differently. Streaming took hold in Scandinavia even five years ago, and the impact has been absolutely phenomenal. It is a phenomenon. It's really the, the, you know, one has to wonder if that's what the future is going to be. I, I don't think we really know. I think, again, it's hard to talk across territories. I think what we've learned in the music business in the last 10, 15 years is that these black and white pronouncements like, 
you know, physical product is dead or streaming will take over and, and be the only thing that works. Generally, these black and white pronouncements are not happening. It's much more complicated than that. Actually, this would be a lot easier for labels if we, they really, we really were going, you know, in these, let's say, very fundamental, almost uh, tectonic kind of shifts of landscape. But we're actually not. We're going very incremental and very, very specific to territories. And it's a very complex web now, which actually makes it very hard for small labels. Much harder than it was, let's say, 20 years ago. I mean, certainly the market was better, but the market was simpler. The market was very more clear. You know, what worked in, in, the way it worked in Germany was very similar to the way it worked in Holland. And the way it worked in Holland was pretty similar to the way it worked in the UK. There were not these dramatic differences. Now you really have dramatic differences. So interesting, at the same time, it makes the label more important for an artist who wants to break into a specific territory than before. I mean, than doing it on your own if yeah. you don't know the, the specifics, yeah, of, right? of course. There's very few artists that will, the, the, you know, the only, the only element that really crosses borders, you know, in, in a way that, an, as, let's say, a lone artist can organize it is digital music via streaming platforms or whether download platforms. But as we pointed out several times today from the different panelists, just because you're on iTunes doesn't mean anybody knows you're there. Or just because you're one of the, you know, what, how many million songs on Spotify, how does somebody find you? And this is really the key point to labels, I think. There's other ways to do it, but probably only if you're a pretty well-established artist to begin with. You know, I think there are, are pretty well-established artists that have entered this and said, okay, now we're doing our own label. But even they use people like P.S., who, who is here today, Tony from P.S., to do some of the work for them. It's very, very difficult to navigate all of this music out there. And you, you know, I don't want to say categorically you do need a label, but it, labels can be quite helpful in, let's say, focusing people's attention to inside this great mass of, of music. Yeah. Also, depending on the genres, as mentioned today. Absolutely. I mean, genres are also have their own logic. You know, that's the other thing. Every genre now has a logic. Every country has a logic, every genre has a logic. I mean, it's a very, very complex web. Yeah. Something that I've seen some musicians I've been talking to complaining so um, about their experiences with record labels that they've been sharing. For example, an artist has been doing things DIY and uh, grow, grew a following. And uh, he liked to release the next album through a label because he was promised... Um, physical, vinyl, CDs, all the stuff that he couldn't deliver himself, but right. the experience was terrible. They, like the promotion and everything was pretty bad. So it's unfortunately, it's somewhat common. So there is like not, <laughs> uh, indie labels are not too equal, which makes a lot of sense. But how do you see, I mean, it's maybe difficult because obviously you do the stuff right. But do you think that there is this issue because of the lack of income and finances or some other issues? The majority, maybe, of labels are not that good. So can you comment on the quality of role? I think uh, I started as an artist on indie labels back in the 80s, even. And I think probably the mix of good to bad indie labels hasn't changed at all. You know, quite a large number of small record labels maybe start with very good intentions, but it's very hard to maintain the funding levels that are necessary to do the job. And it's very cyclical. You know, you have one artist that's rather successful. It takes you through a period of months and then suddenly, you know, you hit the desert of nothing selling and so on. And so, you know, if, if you're, for example, the, the artist you're talking about, if they enter an indie label at that point in time, they may be in big trouble. 
when that label is really struggling to pay their bills and things like that. I mean, it's a very, very brutally tough business, always was. I think most people would never, you know, people don't start indie labels to rip off artists because there's not enough money there to begin with, you know. So the idea that, you know, small indie labels are like greedy or running away, you know, to, I don't know, to some uh, South Sea island with the great uh, profits that they're making is, of course, not the way it is. I think it usually probably starts out of very good intentions and then people get in very rapidly, get in over their heads and realize it's a lot tougher. And I think, you know, the point is they're probably not, where it starts to get bad is they're not communicating this to the artists, that they're promising things they can't promise, essentially. And, yeah. the, you know, and that's, that's not really fair. Um, yeah, but I have to say, it's a, it's a tough business. I mean, even my label, which in the genre we're in, we're considered rather successful. It can be some dark months sometimes. Yeah, it's, I mean, definitely interesting uh, perspective on that, which I want artists to understand uh, the specifics of it. And I think Andy today talked about how many people are involved in releasing records and that it's yeah. not just the artist when you are signed. It's yeah. not like the label is doing everything on their own so there is a lot well that's much another, more. that's another very good point it's not always you know when you sign a, a label deal you have these people that you met and you, you you have a contract and maybe they have a small office or something somewhere or not even an office at all as we discussed today but those folks are also working with lots of partners and their partners could be the ones that are letting them down and you know the the chain is really hard to know like where it's going wrong because it's a very complicated chain to get a record from the artist making the record to getting it out to trying to even get basic distribution for it, whether that be physical distribution or, or digital distribution. It's a very complex web, and there's a lot of places it can go wrong. And I would say running my record label, there's something going wrong every day, of course. I mean, my inbox fills up every day with problems. When you have 12 artists and they're, they're touring globally, there's going to be problems. There's absolutely going to be problems. So... It's do you have enough money to solve these problems? Do you have enough time to solve these problems? Do you have enough smarts to so solve these problems? You know, I guess these are the questions. Yeah. For artists listening to us right now, any particular tips on uh, getting signed? It's a global question, but you asked that uh, <laughs> on, on the panel. So, I mean, I like right away, I can tell you, right, I, I like how it was presented as like there was a lot of even... I don't know, luck. <laughs> so it can be random, but still something. I, I think Andy said something really good. And I think make sure you are something where you're from, whether that just be the town you're in or whether that be the country you're from or the region you're from. You need to show labels that you're doing something. This, I think, is more important than you know, ever. I mean, labels will look at your Facebook page. Labels will see how many likes you have on your Facebook page. Labels will see what your concert schedule was in the year before. If you're not working very hard at it, I doubt no matter how brilliant you are, most labels will not partner with you. It's just not possible at this point in time. I mean, we're, we're at a very different age where the artist has to bring really a lot to the, the party, much more than, for example, like when I started out. I mean, we're, I came out of this American late 80s independence scene and This was very much, we talked about DIY, do-it-yourself and all of these things. But when I think of what we called DIY back then and what DIY is now, it's, you know, there's many more levels to it now. There's many more things required of the artists now than ever before. And labels are looking at that. They're looking at that very much. 
they laser in on it immediately because they know that more and more the margins are very, very difficult to meet. If they're going to have money to promote a band, to actually put into promotion, they want to make sure in a way that the, the car is all ready to get out of the garage. You know, we're not going to build the car in the garage and then open the door. I mean, it, it needs to be ready to go to, yeah. at some level. Having a fan base, having maybe a clear eye on even, you know, what genre-specific promotion is, is relevant to what you're doing and things like that. These, these things can be a huge help to getting artists signed. And going back to what you mentioned earlier, so you want artists who already started building their own fan base and so on, and some musicians, from what I've heard as well, they are kind of feeling like they can keep doing it all the, uh, themselves, but at the same time, a label can bring those partners yeah, I think it's, it's and finding connections. That, I think it's finding that point in time. I agree. I think artists are absolutely overburdened in the responsibilities now. I think it's ridiculous, to be honest. I mean, because of the financial aspect of the music business, now many artists are basically finding themselves recording engineers, marketing specialists, all these kind of things, their own managers, da da da, da all, all these kind of things that were much more specialized if you go back in the industry you know, 25, 30 years ago. And I, I think this puts an enormous burden on artists. I think it takes artists away from doing what they probably do best, which is make music and really go into that as deeply as possible. But that doesn't change the fact that it's necessary. Just to be nostalgic about how it used to be and wasn't it better then, I mean, that's not going to help anybody at, at the moment. We have to look at it the way it is. And I think in many ways, it's unfortunate the way it is. I, I can see that artists would feel very exhausted with what's asked of them. But I think this is, you know, the value of conferences like this. You know, you look, we had a full room. People are interested. People are actually really looking to educate themselves because they realize that it's necessary. My generation of musicians, this was not so important. Maybe we didn't do enough, actually, for the most part. Some of us did, some of us didn't. But now I, I would say that most musicians have some sense of how the business operates, which I think, is, you know, that actually empowers them, to be honest. It makes their job harder, for sure. It makes it more complicated, but it also empowers them. So e even if you are not going to do everything yourself, you still want to educate yourself? Well, so I think it's absolutely necessary. If you look at the, the history of uh, recorded music and just on basic things like contracts, there was a breaking point somewhere in the mid-80s where recording contracts, even with the big companies, became much more artist-friendly. Why? Artists knew more. They were not able to get ripped off like they were before. I mean, my label, we've, we've licensed in the last uh, two years, two records from around 1980. And I mean, it's ridiculous, but we're still dealing with the original record company for these records. These records have not reverted to the artists. I mean, it's terrible. The one artist I even wrote to him, I said, you know, I'm going to license this record from Universal Music and I apologize to you in advance. I mean, there's absolutely no reason I should not, after 30 years, be licensing this from you. That's who I should be licensing this from. But the fact is, that's not possible. So if you would be great if maybe this, this record being re-released might help you at the moment, and it'd be great if you could do some interviews for us and da-da-da-da. And of course, the artist responded very positively, but I think it helped that I understood the position that they might be in, you know, looking at this going, my God, this record I made way back then is still locked up. I mean, as an artist, I released records in the early 90s. All those records now are back to me. They've reverted. I mean, those contracts really changed. And... They changed to a large extent, as I said, because artists educated themselves. 
And I think the artists today, I would say a fair number of people here today were probably artists, that education level has even increased. And this is, I think, absolutely necessary. I mean, it's going, you know, more than ever, I think it's really, really vital and very necessary. Yeah, brilliant. I really like that tip, especially since I'm in the education space myself and uh, musicians need to be reminded that they need the education. So, yeah. so too many artists just think that they need to get better at production and uh, playing instruments, which yeah. is true, absolutely. Of course it is, but then what do you do with it? Yeah, exactly. You have this brilliantly produced uh, jewel, this diamond, but what do you do with it? I mean, yeah, and, and what you mentioned, so even, even if the music is, as I got you, even if the music is great, if the artist is not prepared for working with you, you will not sign them. Yeah, I, I think that, that might be, it would depend on how great. Okay. <laughs> I think labels are willing to make sacrifices to some extent if something just seems irredeemably genius or something like that. But even still, I think if the artist is not cooperative or the artist, I mean, this is not an industry anymore that treats artists like VIPs like it used to. Okay, there's exceptions, but this is really the top 1%. Generally speaking, artists have to be very much fluent business people fluent entrepreneurs, actually, people that carry their own flag for themselves. And again, I, I have misgivings about this. I don't think that this is a, you know, on all, in all levels, a positive thing, but some levels for sure, because when it comes to financial arrangements and things like that, artists are much more prone not to get ripped off at this point in time. Yeah. So thank you for that. So one of the last questions probably about vinyl, I like that you mm -hmm. kept asked several times about it and it seemed like in uh, like in pretty much <laughs> all territories where physical uh, is popular vinyl e uh, sales are increasing and uh, it's interesting so any from your experience and from what you've heard and from what you see overall so how can you comment on what <coughs> what's happening in in that area i mean it's increasing incredibly fast but as one of the other panelists pointed out i mean it, it was essentially coming from zero By 2009, 2008, I mean, more or less, there wasn't vinyl. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it had really become very, very minor part of the market. So to have this phenomenal increase is, is, has to be, let's say, put into perspective. When we talk about these kind of increases of about 60, 70% a year, it's still only about, you know, just 10, less than 10% of the overall physical market. So that has to be kept in mind. I think what I find is that artists that decide, and I think I, I, I sort of touched on this today, artists that choose to do self-releases, which I find absolutely a valuable thing. I mean, of course, at some point that this is maybe even necessary and could be your best angle to go. But I think they often get confused that they think, well, I should not do a CD. I should just do vinyl and I'll put up on digital platforms. Okay. On one hand, this Uh, option can work if we're talking on a really, really low level. But it, when it comes to, as I pointed out, when it comes to trying to get reviews in major media and things like that, it can be quite limiting. There really are still gatekeepers that demand certain formats to get inside the gate and generally download only or streaming to, you know, some sort of digital platform only and vinyl is not going to do it for you. Now, again, I think this is an old-fashioned concept, too, and I think this will change. I mean, this will morph and become more open, but at the moment, that's where, where it's at. So artists should be cautioned 
when they think about vinyl and think about what the overall value of it is. For example, like I know artists in Slovenia that have only put their records on vinyl, but there's actually no place to sell vinyl in Slovenia. So if you look at it from a, from a broader business platform, it's maybe not a smart idea. If you're talking about only selling it at your shows and you have enough shows to sell it, then okay. I mean, it can make perfect sense. So it's, I think you just have to be very sharp and very directed and very focused on what exactly your expectations are. Thanks a lot. And the last random question, is there a, a book, a documentary, which you would recommend to a musician? Anything you've seen lately that you think can inspire and educate an artist listening to us now? I know it's unexpected, but anything? Yeah, yeah. What, um, Any, guess... Maybe even a, a big blog post, which we can link to. I'm trying to think what the name of this book was. Um... It's about the internet. Very, very fascinating book. I can send you the title, but that doesn't work for your... <laughs> it works perfectly because I'll add it to the show notes okay, okay, later on. Okay, so, okay. I will uh, send you this book because this book, is, it's something about like how the internet ruined everything. And of course, this is an overstatement. He's even playing with this a little bit. But it's a very, very interesting look at what digitization has done to lots of businesses. And the music business is one of them. And okay, I think... The book was written in 2012. I think it's a very strong warning as to that things are not what they appear to everybody. But on the other hand, as you see from today's panel, there's a lot of optimism now about, about digital platforms. And things have actually morphed in the last few years, actually, even. So let's see how it all washes out. I mean, I think you have to, you know, at this point, we have to embrace this technological shift and... Um, You know, we're not going to roll the clock back to 1990 again. It's not going to happen. But I think the main thing is, again, having information. There's a lot of, I think, wrong information out there. There's an idea that information should be free in and of itself. And I, and I strongly oppose that idea. I think that there's never been anything almost ever great created from that. I mean, the great irony is that, for example, the MP3 itself was created in a very, very organized research program to get patents on digital items so i mean we wouldn't even had the mp3 if there had not been some monetization that was tied to it i mean this was funded by the german government to get you know a patent on this to actually then they would get royalties for the the rest of the, you know the rest of the world or you know the rest of time i guess so i think we we have to think strongly about sometimes this idea that goods should be free and I'm not, I'm not from the free use crowd, but I think you also have to embrace new technologies also, for sure. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks to Chris and you, uh, the listener who made it so far uh, once again. And as you could hear, I decided to end the podcast with a bit unusual question. Just for that, you know, being more specific than asking my guests to give in advice to musicians uh, maybe more interesting. So the book Chris was referring to is called The Internet is Not the Answer. It's written by Andrew Keen and you can find the Amazon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. I'm leaving to Utrecht for uh, the Dance Fair uh, conference today. I will host a session on artists and label subscriptions there on Sunday and I hope to bring a cool episode or a couple from there for you as well. So stay tuned, please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes if you haven't yet and learn how to support the podcast by leaving an iTunes rating, it means a lot, and claim a very cool Wisping branded postcard at 
getacard.wispin.co. The link is also in the show notes. I'm out. See you soon. You have been listening to the We Spin Recipes podcast. Learn how we can help you improve your music career at wespin12.com. We Spin 12.